Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Pavel Yosefovich. Based in New Jersey, Pavel is a developer, trainer, speaker, and book author. You can follow him on Twitter at Zodiacon and check out his website at scorpiosoftware.net. Pavel is the author of the LeanPub book, Windows Kernel Programming, Second Edition. In the book, Pavel describes software kernel drivers programming for Windows. This second edition expands on existing topics and adds chapters on advanced programming techniques and the Windows filtering platform. In this interview, we're going to talk about his background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a book author. So thank you very much, Pavel, for being on the Lean Pub Front Matter podcast. Happy to be here. I always have to start these interviews by asking people for uh, what I sort of jokingly call their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and you know how you found yourself interested in a career in computers and technology. Uh, well, I actually was born in the Soviet Union, what was once the Soviet Union back in 1971. Maybe you should edit that part out. Just kidding. Uh, and then uh, when I was uh, two, we immigrated to Israel. So I lived lost of my life in Israel, actually. Uh, I've been in the U.S. only for the past uh, six months or so. Um, and uh, I remember that when I was uh, kind of 12, um, and uh, and there was the kind of uh, uh, an out-curriculum activity after school that talked about something called computers. I really had no idea what that thing really meant. And then I, I got that... Uh, I went there and there was this ZX Spectral. It was one of the uh, first uh, 8-bit computers back in the early 80s. And I was I was just hooked. I mean, it was possible to, to tell that box to do stuff. It was never uh, objecting to anything. I could run a loop for a million times. It didn't uh, complain about anything. So it was kind of magical to me. And since then, I've, I've looked at software development as like uh, kind of magic. You're creating something out of nothing. And I think this is what still keeps me interested in software uh, many years later, because it is kind of magical and creating something out of nothing. And that's really the gist of it. And were you able to get your own computer when you were still a teenager? Yeah, yeah. A couple of years later, I got a Texas Instruments machine. Uh, it was 16-bit, which was very revolutionary at the time. But it actually was a pretty slow machine. It was slower than other 8-bit machines. But of course, I had no idea about these differences, so couldn't really figure out why things are the way they are. But I learned the, the basic language, which was very popular at the time. And I thought, I mean, that's the greatest language in the world. I don't mean anything else. Um, well, little did I know. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was kind of well, just just magic. I mean, I was chatting writing these uh, simple games. I really liked games. I liked playing at the time. And I always uh, also um, liked writing them, creating these kind of games uh, using that machine and later on the Commodore 64 machine, the fairly famous one. I had that most of my teenage career, so to speak, um, and still sometimes missed it. It was really magical for its day, at the very least. And I see from your LinkedIn profile that you studied computer science at university. Well, actually, I studied electrical engineering. Oh, did you? Oh, not computer science uh, okay. specifically. I thought that uh, studying too much math would uh, would uh, make me crazy. So I decided to go in a more broader sense to electronics and things like that. But software was always my my passion. I really always thought of myself as a software developer, creator. Um, and it's good to it's good to have the background which is uh, more general or generic than just pure computer science. You have 
uh, that broader perspective, you also can talk about hardware and things like that, which the typical software developer perhaps doesn't have the proper background because that one was studying pure computer science, which is very common. Yeah, that's a that's a topic actually. The sort of what to study and things like that is is a topic that's come up on this podcast a number of times. Um, which leads me to ask a question I've asked many times before um, of guests, which is: if you were starting out now with an intention of having the, a career like the one you've had, would you go to university and spend four years studying uh, a formal? Um, probably not. Um, at the time, it was uh, kind of uh, almost uh, required. Uh, I mean, my parents wanted me to learn and all that stuff. And like, uh, I had to sort of do that, but it was very painful. Actually, uh, I found out that uh, most people that went uh, to study that computer engineering and electrical engineering, they weren't really interested in the topic. They just heard that in the high tech field, there is a great salary. So they were just there to pass the test and move on. And beyond that, the actual material was, wasn't really, um, I would say taught in an interesting fashion. It was um, all those professors, most of them, not all of them, but most of them were doing that because they had to. Um, they didn't really have the teaching skills and nor the interest to, to provide that kind of uh, interest or passion or reasoning. Why are we learning that? Not just to pass some test, but what's the rationale behind this? And I think this is a big problem in the entire education system, not just the university. At university, you go because you, you're supposed to want to go there. Uh, but if I had to do that again, probably wouldn't do that. It's just uh, most of these four years were wastes of time, really. And so you would um, find some, you know, try boot camps or something like that, or just set up your own? Yeah, uh, would be something which is more practical, more to the point, more uh, being interested in what I'm actually studying. Um, I think it's it's it starts with the teachers. Um, with the, the professors, all of that, their um, their demeanor and the way they they approach the subject is um, leaves lots to be desired. I would say. Yeah, I think uh, anyone listening, even you know, I'm I'm sort of more on the sort of I would go to university side of things, but um, you know, we can all think about sort of bad professors that we had, um, and if you got stuck with quite a few of them. You know that that can be just just a miserable miserable uh, not just waste of time but miserable time um, to to, yeah. to go through um, uh, and uh, being able to sort of shop around and sort of switch from one platform to another for example is is not something you can do in the conventional university structure you're kind of committed at least for a year at a time and it, moving around during your undergrad years is really frowned upon so there's a lot of risks and constraints that come from a system like that. Um, but that could. Uh, so in the in the mid to late 90s and very early 2000s, there was a huge dot-com boom uh, in, in the States. It trickled into Canada and, and other places as well. Uh, was was there a dot-com boom in uh, Israel? Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And, uh, it was kind of the same. Israel is very similar to the US uh, in that respect. Everything trickles down to Israel pretty fast. Um, and this is true even today. Israel is known as the startup nation. The most number of startups compared to the number of uh, people uh, in, in the country so yeah we had that um and we we got that breakdown that collapse of the dot-com uh, boom just like the us and were you were your first kind of jobs in in sort of the web uh no i actually i hate the web i have okay. to say uh, i really don't like uh, the web um <laughs> well 
at least uh, at the beginning, my, my background was in, in client applications, working on, on the client and just trying to, uh, to make the most of the machine that you have. And I feel that with web, you lose that kind of control. You're in the confines of the browser and you have server side networking, all the stuff that uh, constrains you, especially in the past Today you have some more freedom, the HTML5 and stuff like that. But at the time it was pretty constrained and I wouldn't, I wouldn't call that very interesting or, uh, I don't know, at least for me, it wasn't that interesting to do at the time. Yeah, that's really interesting. Actually, when we get to um, talking about your book, we'll be talking about things like, you know, native apps and, you know, kernel, kernels and control wow. and things like that. Um, uh, but just before we move on to the next part of the interview, I did want to ask, um, uh, you know, I, for some reason, sort of uh, the kind of self-published authors that we get, we get on Leap Up are sort of very independent types and they move around a lot and they often have stories about that kind of thing. So what, what brought you to move to the U.S. Uh, six months ago? Uh, well, it was just, um, I don't know, an opportunity to, uh, to obtain, the, uh, in all kind of visa, uh, all visa is for, uh, extraordinary abilities, or at least that's what uh, the Americans have, uh, here, uh, believe that, that I have. Uh, so it was kind of a way to, to change atmosphere, to, uh, to perhaps have new opportunities, my kids, uh, to have uh, different schools, different environment. I mean, they were excited about the move, so we, we just uh, kind of did it almost uh, from from today to tomorrow, kind of in, in two months, we, we made the, the entire move, which was pretty crazy when you think about it now, and it still is crazy. Um, but I think it's uh, just uh, kind of an adventure kind of thing. Right, let's see where, where it could go. What's the most striking kind of culture shock experience that you've had? Well, uh, I am familiar with the U.S. I mean, I've visited the U.S. Uh, many times, but uh, really it's the, the the calmness of things. I mean, everybody is pretty calm. Uh, I don't see any people, uh, I don't know, honking too much uh, on the highways uh, or uh, getting too angry. There's, there's space here. Israel is a fairly uh, small country, and sometimes all the enemies that within, without it, it's uh, sometimes uh, very uh, stressful. Uh, to some extent, and things are always happening. Here it's uh, much more relaxed. I mean, I'm much more relaxed than I used to be. Uh, there was nature outside my window, so I mean, I see trees. I mean, that's uh, that's a nice thing. Uh, so generally, I would say uh, the relaxation, the calmness, relatively speaking. I mean, the U.S. is big, so uh, if you really want to get into action, you have to drive really, really far to to get some uh, real action. I like it. Well, that's great to hear. I would, I would say um, uh, my my personal sort of experience whenever I go to the states that always said I find striking coming from a from a sort of Canadian kind of culture is um, how simultaneously straightforward and friendly Americans typically are. Um, so in 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 Canada, it's like very unusual to be sitting next to someone in a bar and turn to them and start a conversation. That's actually just at least in my experience, like quite rare. And but if you do it, and the person sitting next to you said. I don't want to talk. You would carry that resentment and insult with you forever as a Canadian, whereas an American would go, they'd try and start a conversation. If the guy said, I didn't want to talk to you, oh, okay. No reason to be, expect yeah. you to. And they both carry on with their lives as though nothing happened. Um, so that there's a, that's a, that's a good distinction. I need to remember that next time yeah, when you yeah. come in Canada. Oh yes. <laughs> well, the, the, no, no, no one's going to get mad at you if you try and strike up a conversation, and if, especially if they can tell you're not from Canada, it won't bother them that much. But anyway, and I shouldn't speak for all Canadians, but I think that's pretty true. Um, 
So just move, uh, moving on to the next part of the uh, uh, interview where we talk, we're going to talk about your book, your latest book specifically, but when did you get into writing? Uh, well, I always uh, liked to write, uh, and uh, at some point, I think it was in 2012, someone from Packet Publishing uh, approached me and said, how about you write a book on WPF? You seem to know something about that because I wrote a few blog posts about WPF, the Windows Presentation Foundation, uh, a well-known uh, old technology in Windows. And I said, well, sounds like a great idea. Let's just do that. That was kind of my first uh, professional foray into uh, authoring an actual book. Um, and later on, I followed that with another book and, and later, with, still later in 2017, I finished the Windows Intelis book, uh, co-authored with some uh, other guys like Alex, Alex Unesco. And, and, uh, and my, I would say my experience with, uh, official publishers, uh, weren't, uh, that great. Um, and I have no idea. I didn't know what LinPub was at the time, even though it, it existed, I, I had no idea it, it actually existed. But then someone uh, just pointed me to to that to LinPub, and and then I I thought oh, that's like uh, an ideal platform or very close to ideal because I can write at my own pace. Uh, I don't have to answer to anyone. No editor is uh, breathing down my neck and saying, "Well, you should write this or that." It is my book. I'd like to write it in the way that I like to write it. Uh, so please uh, stay out of it. Um, and you also get uh, higher royalties. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's kind of amazing. It was amazing to me at the time that with an official publishers, you get these, you, you work terribly hard, to get this book out and then your royalties are, are negligible. Most of the, of the, uh, of the money goes to the publisher, which I always found like ridiculous. I'm doing all the work or most of the work and getting just a measly piece of of the royalties, which doesn't make any sense. And, and once I realized that I could just write without anyone, uh, having to, to say anything, that was like a kind of ideal. And the point is that I'm writing for myself. I'm not writing for others. If others find uh, that content useful, that's a bonus. I'm just writing because I like to write. I like to express myself. I like to explain, uh, the complex things in, uh, in a simple manner. Uh, it's just something that I like to do. If others find it useful, all the best. Yeah, just, uh, I'm, I'm curious, I'm a little bit about that. It's interesting, the sort of theme of control <laughs> seems to be developing in our interview that you like to be in, in control of things. But that is that is something we've heard a lot from, from authors over the years, that one of the reasons they're drawn to a self-publishing platform is they just want to, they just want to be in control. And that, that can be true whether their experience with a conventional publisher was positive or negative. Um, they can often be like, you know what, for my next, for, for this type of project, especially if you're writing for yourself, you don't need anyone breathing down your neck. You don't need, I mean, nowadays, if you want to pitch a book, a trade book to a conventional publisher, they make you write like a 40 page business plan. And it's like, aren't, isn't that your job? You know, <laughs> um, and, and in, increasingly, yeah, we do, we do hear from people saying, you know, the, the, the value add from, from publishers. I mean, if, if, if you're going to be, a, if you, if you're aiming to be a celebrity, um, then often going with a conventional publisher can really help and things like that, but they have to choose to elevate you. They have to choose to put the marketing behind you. They have to choose all that kind of stuff. And that none of that's in your control. Um, uh, but yeah, so anyway, moving on to, uh, your, your book, uh, windows kernel programming, second edition, um, uh, you published it in progress. Um, and now it's, now it's, I believe complete. So congratulations. That's great. 
Um, and uh, so just to sort of talk about the book, um, let's sort of talk a little bit about the um, technical terms, which I sort of invoked earlier when you started talking about client and things like that. A lot of people hear client, they think I'm a consultant and I've got a client, but that's not the kind of client you're talking about. Um, no. So what, what is, let's start with uh, explaining, let's say, and I'm sure you get this question all the time, but you know, what is a kernel? Well, the kernel is really the, the engine that powers up an operating system. If you think about what an operating system really is, basic functionality is to allow other applications to run. Uh, so you want to run your notepad or whatever word, whatever you're running, someone has to actually manage all the resources on the system. Uh, you want to use the disk, you want to use the, the screen, the mouse, and so on. Then you need some kind of management entity to take care of all of that. That's the kind of the basic role of a kernel. And that's why every OS must have a kernel. And, and yep. And, and so, uh, for example, so this sounds like a very important part of the computer, <laughs> um, uh, critical. And, uh, is it easy to like, I mean, this in this specific sense of like just to access a kernel, uh, and start programming in it? Uh, no, it's uh, considered uh, sometimes a uh, kind of black art, a dark art that only magicians and wizards are, are trained in doing. And one of the reasons I wrote the Windows Kernel Programming book, the first edition and the second one, is to dispel all that myth. So it's it's not that hard to do. You just need to know uh, and to get started, it might be, be difficult if you have no particular background. It's very, very difficult to know where to start. The mutation is vast. Sometimes it actually is missing some pieces. So it's very difficult to know how to get started. And that's why I wrote this book. This one of the reasons I wrote this book to show that in fact, it's not a black art. It's not only for all those uh, selected few that uh, perhaps uh, went to some uh, trials and tribulations. Anyone can actually do that. If you have a proper basic background in, in language such as C, and some basic understanding of uh, of operating systems, then uh, with the proper guidance, you can write kernel drivers, you can write kernel code. Um, and specifically, I'm targeting Windows here, but the, the same ideas conceptually apply to other operating systems as well. And uh, for what reason would you maybe, would, would one want to write kernel code? So I think the one of the main reasons, at least in recent years, has to do with the security, the cybersecurity space. Uh, if you want to know when things happen in a very low level kind of way, in a way we can control things. For example, a new process starts up, you can tell that it's happening. Then you can decide, hey, I don't like that process. I think it's running something that might be malicious. On the color side of things, I can say, let me just kill the process and not let it continue running. Something you cannot do from user mode, where we don't have that kind of power. So that would be one uh, reason that is fairly common these days. Also, anything that relates to talking to hardware has to be done. Most of, the, of these things have to be done from the kernel side of things. If you have a device uh, that you want to be able to talk to or to manage, this is mostly done by hardware vendors. So if the Intel creates some network card, they have to write a device driver communicating with the kernel. Uh, otherwise, this device is completely uh, inoperational if it hasn't the, the correct code to, to interface with the rest of the kernel. That is also a very common uh, scenario. Um, and in general, if you want to do stuff that you can't do from user mode, kernel is your, your best bet. This is where you have all the power, the cell power, the operating system has. And, um, do the people who make operating systems like the fact that there are people like you out there writing books, telling people how to get into their kernel and program it? Probably not, or at least not as, as you would hope. 
Uh, and there's one one reason is perhaps a good one because um, when you're writing writing code within the kernel, you are part of the kernel now. Anything bad you're doing, you get that uh, crash of the system. In Windows, it's fairly well known as the blue screen, blue screen of death. And, and so in that case, right. uh, when, when, when customers get that, they always say Microsoft is to blame. In most cases, actually, Microsoft is not to blame. It's actually whoever wrote the driver that caused the system to crash, which is usually some third-party vendor, which is not Microsoft. But of course, people have no idea about that. They know that Windows is made by Microsoft. So whenever they get the blue screen, they just blame Microsoft automatically. Obviously, Microsoft is not happy about people writing kernel drivers. They would like that to be uh, the the least amount of people doing that, uh, making more instability, getting more potential instability into the kernel. And so, um, who would your who would the book be for? Would it be for people who are sort of brand new to this world, this scary world of kernels, or people people who actually have been tasked with like you've got to do something, to, you've got to fix the blue screen on 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 this client's machine or something like that? Uh, so, I, I try to address uh, most uh, developers that are in the kernel space. Uh, starting with new developers that ones want to get into kernel programming and they don't know how to do that, how to get started, what are the tools to use, and uh, what do we have there. And I uh, also target more experienced developers that already are working within the kernel, but they want to understand a bit deeper how things work and maybe learn new techniques. So I'm trying to cover basic stuff in the first few chapters, and then later on, I'm getting into more complex things uh, and just to, to try to cover as much as I kind of can in a single book. So even if someone's not sort of in the in the world of Windows, the, the, at least the first few chapters will actually be quite instructive for them, just learning the kind of basic principles and things like that? Definitely, definitely. I talk about how the operating system is built a little bit and, and the foundations on, on which Windows is built. So even if you're not writing drivers at all, even even if you're only working in user mode, in user space, you you get lots of insight as to how Windows actually works behind the scenes, which is always a good thing that uh, main developers actually miss, um, in the sense that they think if they're, they're writing some kind of stuff in, in Node.js or JavaScript or these kinds of uh, super high-level languages that they're controlling the world, but they actually have no idea how things actually work. And it's it's important if you want to be a good developer, you need to have at least one or two layers of abstraction underneath understood in, in some way. Um, and that would make you a really good developer. And this book is, of course, a second edition, as we mentioned. So uh, what are the, some of the differences between the first edition and the second edition? Okay, so the first edition, I was kind of uh, rushing through it and writing really fast. Uh, I got the book pretty uh, quickly out there. Um, and I wanted to, I already knew I wanted to uh, to explain some more things and add more techniques that, that weren't yet uh, official and would be later on be available in newer versions of Windows. So I knew I wanted to expand on existing chapters, which I did. So I added more examples and talked about some extra programming techniques that I didn't mention in the first edition, and also added uh, some new chapters um, about the Windows filtering platform, which is a, a nice uh, platform for network filtering. So you can see everything that's going on in terms of networking and, and another a chapter, uh, a more modern framework for writing drivers called the Kernel Driver Framework. So try to kind of uh, fill in the missing pieces from the first edition. Thanks very much. That's that's great. Um, it's uh, I know I saw on Twitter that it, you know sort of people were really happy to see that it was it was finally finished. Um, and that gives me a chance to segue to the last part of the interview where you talk about you know your your work as an 
the, the sort of nitty gritty of being a, a self-published author and writer and things like that. And so the book is up on Amazon uh, in both the paperback and Kindle, I believe. Um, and did you yep. use our print ready PDF output feature to make the, the PDF that you needed for Amazon? Yes. Yes, I did. Um, so usually, I mean, many people uh, tell me that they feel more comfortable uh, to hold the physical book. Uh, and so we can, I can definitely relate. There's something I think magical about a physical book and not just a, a electronic one. And so once I have the book ready, I publish that on Amazon as well. And yes, I'm using the print ready feature. Oh, fantastic, fantastic! Yeah, we um we recently recently launched something called Lean Pub Author Services, where we'll we'll do do the same thing for people. Um uh and and it's and like you know, we were, I mean at least I'll speak for myself. I was a bit surprised at how much people really really do like to see, get copies of lean pub books in print. Um, uh, that was kind of just a, just a blind spot that I had. I mean, I, I kind of, if, if you'd asked me the question, I would have given the right answer before having this experience, but it really, when we sort of saw the charts, it's like really brought it home, home, at least to me. Yeah, that, that... yeah definitely. I mean, one of the benefits of electronic books is trying to save on trees and all that, but unfortunately still people like to hold on books in their hands. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, and in particular, actually, uh, if if one of the purposes of self-publishing a book is to sort of increase your your profile, if you're an independent consultant or something like that, actually, like having physical books to give or send people is like extremely useful. Um, or if you're, and of course, if you're speaking at a conference, having a pile of books that you've slept with you, you know, is is really useful too. Um, the last question that I always like to ask on the podcast, if the guest is a lean pub author, is. Uh, if in your time using LeanPub, if there was a, one thing that just always had you shaking your fist at the screen and yelling at LeanPub over, or if there was one magical feature we could build for you, is there anything you can think of that you would like us to do? Mm. Well, I guess more flexibility in fonts would be nice. I think it's always uh, kind of, I see the list is a bit limited. Sometimes I can't get uh, exactly the font that I would like. Uh, well, that's one point. Okay. Yeah. No. Thanks for that feedback. That's really good. Um, for anyone listening who's who is a lean pub author is thinking of being one. When you make a lean pub book, there's a theme section where you can choose various settings. And if you have a custom theme, there's font drop downs for like the title font, you know, and the body font and things like that. And um, that list, I believe, is not even in alphabetical order currently. <laughs> um, uh, and it doesn't sort of show you what the we we have we exactly have, we have a help center article that shows you, but you'd have to go there and scroll down and and look to see it examples of what those texts looks like. So it's not like in Microsoft Word, for example, where you choose font and the font is in the font. The font name is in the font itself, which would be a, a really great feature to have. So, and I totally see the value in that and appreciate that. Uh, well, uh, thank you very much for taking some time out of your day to talk to me and to talk to our audience. And thank you very much for being a LeanPub author. Thank you, Len. I really appreciate the platform. And, uh, thank you for, for creating it. I, mean, uh, I want to know what, what I would do without it. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.